Romans chapter 12. And there was great rejoicing. Luke chapter 12, which is a rich chapter. We, uh, we're going to just look at verse 1 this morning. two sermons in this verse, maybe three, uh, but I'm going to try to do it in four, and so we'll see how that goes. So we're just in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Hear then the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. Lord, we thank you that you are God who speaks the heart of the Son. We thank you for the mercies by which we might offer ourselves, even this morning, as we listen, as we seek to understand your word and to have it shape and transform us, Father, we all not just gather information from your word, but to be transformed. in us and make us all that you desire and desire as you describe through your words to us. So help us this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. So we turn to the very real and practical life of the Christian, and that's where if you look at Romans 12 and 16, it's not that there's not any more doctrine, he'll, he'll hit on some of that, but he by and large turns to the application of chapters 1 to 11. He begins to enter down into the very practical aspects of the Christian life. And as he does so here in Romans 12, it's not a new topic. A lot of people like to draw hard lines between what he's been doing and what he's doing now. This is not a new topic. It is the next step of the same topic. He's been talking about God and his ways. And that includes and actually flows into, flows out of everything we've been talking, flows into what we'll be talking about in the next number of chapters. Not some separate thing. It's the application of the implications of everything that he's been saying. So for Paul, this is this is not separate from theology. That actually the theology we have been talking about is the is the motive for what he's going to call us to do. It's the context in which we do everything that he's calling us to do. What what this life that we're to live, this presenting of our bodies as a sacrifice, he's calling us to do. Doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not something that we just now he's going to give us a list of things to do. He wants everything that he's been saying about who he is and what he has done to the context in which we hear the kingdom. Our story is part of this greater story. Your struggles, the struggles to obey what's here and to do the things that are here, your struggle to follow Jesus and to to be more like Him, our struggles to be married and to raise children and to to work in this world and to deal with all that is in front of us. The, all of these struggles are part of a greater story. And he puts these things in the context of that greater story. Defines who we are as we seek to obey. And so the Christian life that's described here is, is rooted in and it's empowered by and it's motivated by the death and resurrection of Christ by the whole gospel. All that he's been saying in this chapter. 
motivates and empowers the life that He calls us to live. In fact, any life that's lived from some other motivation is less than Christian. That's why He spends so long before He gives any commands. Romans 6.4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, right? that's doctrine. Right? That's theology. That Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And just as He was, we too might walk in newness of life. The first half of that sentence is Romans 1-11. to And the second part of that sentence is Romans 12-16. to Just as Christ was raised, just because all of these things are true and real, we too may live a new life. And it gives the context for that life. And most importantly, the motive for it. There are a lot of reasons that people do good things. The scripture, the main thing it cares about is our motive. Why we do what we do. Who we are. All the commands in the next few chapters are only possible because of chapters 1 through 11. Because His mercy. We do them, He says, by the mercies of God. And because they're true, we can live in newness of life. That's described here. That therefore then, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, the therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, connecting us to everything that came before. It marks a transition from these doctrinal foundations then into the practical implications of the so what. He's moving from the indicative to the imperative. I don't know if you know those indicative and imperative are moods, um, uh, verb, verbal moods. The indicative mood is that mood in which statements of fact and truth are given. God is sovereign. That's an indicative. The mood is a statement of fact which is telling you what's true. And so the imperative is the mood in which commands are given. When, when we're told what to do, therefore offer your body. That's a command. And so he moves from the indicatives and says, what are those imperatives? The things that are imperative if all these things are true. This is the way the Bible usually moves, giving us the the indicatives first, grounding all of the imperatives, all the commands, all the things we have to believe are always grounded in the indicatives. God is sovereign. God is good. God has sent His own Son. God was in Christ reconciling us to Himself. He has saved us. He has adopted us. These are all indicative statements of fact, and the imperatives flow out of them. Paul has done this. I just give you the classic example is the book of Ephesians. As you think of Paul, the book of Ephesians being probably not as six chapters. The first three chapters are almost 100% indicative. I don't think there's one command. Positive, but I'm 99% positive there's not one command in Ephesians 1 to 3. Right? That, that God chose you before the foundations of the world in Christ, right? He predestined that, that we should be adopted as His sons and holy and blameless in Him. In chapter 2, that, you know, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive in Christ. And therefore, you know, we have been saved by grace through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is the work of God. And He goes through three chapters of Indicative, 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 and in chapter four starts with the word therefore. In chapters four to six, almost exactly half the book then moves into the application. Right? It's always grounded in the indicative. The Christian life has to be grounded in the, the 
indicatives of our faith, who we are, and what God has done. First Peter three, rather says this: since all these things are to be resolved, Peter's been talking about eschatology, right? About what's going to happen. He told them some indicative things, right? This is going to happen. And so after saying these, thus, since all these things basically are true, what sort of people ought you and I to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Right? Exactly what Paul is saying. Since all these things are true, that I've been saying in Romans chapter 1 to 11, since all these things are true, what sort of people ought we to be in holiness and in godliness? able to justify us, to pour out His Spirit on us, to begin a new and good work in us that He will carry on to completion. And it's not just me that depends not on human will and exertion, but on God who exercises it. On God who exercises it. And this is where Paul turns his thoughts. This is the pivot point for Paul as he starts his appeal to his brothers therefore by being Plants his It's that pivot point from what he has been saying about God's mercy for all these centuries. It is by these mercies. I urge you to this kind of meaningful life. And I urge you to live in a way that is transformed. Like the NIV here actually says, in view of God's mercy. And I kind of like that because it's by his mercies, it's in view of his mercies. Those mercies that we have been saved and empowered and motivated. I cannot stress enough the importance of what we call the faith. This is the indicative of the good work of Christ. When we get this confused, how many people want to go after the imperatives and try to live that life? Try to please God, try to do what He says. What is it? Let's get down to the practical of what God tells us to do, and let's try to do it. Saying there's anything wrong with that, but if you start there instead of with the indicatives, your Christian life will be all wrong. It will be all wrong because they have to be grounded. I can't stress enough: the mercy that has been received and enjoyed is the context, it is the motive, it is the power to do what He's calling us to do. Otherwise, we're just pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're just trying really hard to be and to do all these things. Unless we do them by the mercies of God. Unless we start in the mercies. We don't promise it. We don't have the hope of mercy. He's talking about the actual, received, experienced, enjoyed mercy of God. By these mercies that you that are new every morning and that we live in and that we live by. It is through these mercies that we're urged into a new life. Romans 5.2 says it this way, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have obtained it, past tense. We have obtained it by faith 
into His grace, into His mercy, by His mercy, into this place of grace where we stay. He's saying we are justified, right? We are accepted. We are forgiven. We are adopted. And He says when we we have entered in this place where we stay, it's where we live, it's where we are. And it's from in this place, it's mercy and grace in which we stand. Can't do anything for God except for that place. If you're doing it for God, but you're not standing in that place, it's not really for God. It's out of yourself and in some ways for ourselves. You can't please God. It's wrong motives. Every attempt at obedience in the Christian life must come from the place of grace in which we stand. Forgiven, loved, accepted, adopted, belonging to Him. Heart, soul, mind, and body, now and in eternity. His person entirely. And from that place, we begin to hear these words. The commands, the callings. So we don't obey to get grace, to get mercy. Right? We're working because of grace. We're working because of grace. In grace. By grace. says, the power of sin is broken by what God did in Christ. But those are the indicatives. What God did in Christ, and only when the power of sin is actually broken by what God did in Christ can ethical admonitions be effective. You can't, unless those things are not only true but experienced, you cannot obey if you all because of God's power. Paul's exhortation to a new life come to us in this grace in which we already stand. You can find a plant that's for 11 chapters over and over and over again. It's God's sovereign grace from before the foundations of the world. Those who foreknew and predestined, those who predestined and called, and those who called and justified, and those who justified and glorified and plants us by the Spirit and by faith in Christ now and forever. And then he says, what sort of people are we? other motive is some form of legalism. No, we're for grace, out of grace, in which we stand. And so from this place of grace, Paul urges us, he says, I appeal to you, I, I urge you, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, from all these things that I've been telling you, I, I use sort of force of whatever authority and personality I have to urge you, to appeal to you, then to respond to God's grace. Presenting, he says, your body. What an interesting phrase, and that's why we have to go down and actually unpack it. It's almost just the phrase of the word. You know, to present your bodies. You know, why our bodies? And there are so many ways. There are a lot of things I would put in there. You know, the, the, the commentators have diverged on this. You know, for some, the body means it just stands in for the whole self. Right? Like, I think my body, that's all of me, includes everything that's in me. I think that there's something to be said for that, but I think when he says to present your bodies, it, he means bodies, your physical bodies. Part of that is because I think he comes after the inner part of verse 2, conforming but being transformed by the renewing of our mind and our heart. But he concretizes it, he, he, he makes it physical and real in our physical bodies, right? We live through our bodies, through our eyes and what we see. We 
you know, through our ears and what we hear, right, through our hands and what we're able to touch and live through our bodies, our hands and our feet and our whole sexuality, our chastity, all of these things are expressed through our physical bodies. And he says, offer your, your body. You couldn't do anything apart from it. So he's going to say it is the whole person, no doubt, but he, he doesn't, the, the Bible doesn't want us to separate like what we think and believe and, you know, being holy in our thoughts and our minds and it's somehow divorced from the actual life that we live in our bodies. And what we do with our bodies every moment of every day. That these things are inseparable and indivisible. And so he starts concretizing it, physicalizing it by saying, well, offer him your, your body. Your whole self in that physical Because you can't give your body. I was thinking about this. I didn't want my My inner self gives my outer self. Right? If my outer self is given, if my body is given to the inner self, he's offered it. So there's a wholeness here, and we don't want to miss that. But I want us to see this. The very first act of obedience is to present our bodies to God. Not to go do something for God, but to give yourself to God. And I would say this is, this, again, this is critical to the Christian life, that you cannot do anything for God if you have not given yourself. There's so many people who don't give, we don't want to give ourselves to God. We don't want to, you know, that whole, what we're going to get into here, this whole sacrifice thing. I just want a little slice over here where I can do a few things, little discreet or individual things for Him. And He says, you've got to give your whole self, your whole body to Him. Your body is the instrument through which you live your life. And He says, take that instrument. Apart from which you can't do very much. And present it. First thing, before you do anything, present. That word present, as it's used here, has a technical meaning, a te- technical sense. It, it, it has to do with worship. And it, and it doesn't mean there are other times and places where you can present things in different ways. But here, this word specifically means. The idea of offering something as a sacrifice of worship. So when he says present your body, it's all sacrificial language. And so these, you know, and then when you get there, they say that is a sacrifice. And so those go together. It's, a, it's the whole sentence is, a, is about literally like a picture of Old Testament sacrifice where you're to offer something on the altar as a sacrifice. And he's saying offer, present, offer your body. Put your body on the altar as a sacrifice. To God. To offer your body, to yield it, to be on the altar, to surrender it. Right? To yield it to God and surrender it to God. Not my body anymore, your body. The verb of this offering is present your body. The verb of present in the continuous ongoing action is a figurative, a part of speech that it means continuous. It's not something you do once, you know, offer your body, one and done. No, it's, it's offer your body, keep on, keep on, keep surrendering, keep giving. Give it to Him all the time, every moment of every day. It's because of the living sacrifice. Not one day. You go on living. And so this offering isn't something you do and then move on from. No, every morning, every moment, we offer and we keep on, keep yielding. Keep surrendering. 
continue in a state of surrender, of yieldedness, of belonging to Him. Before God asks for one outward act of obedience, He asks for the total surrender of our persons to Him. If you think of the Christian life in any other way, you haven't understood it. This is too much of what is wrong with so-called Christianity in America and in the world. Is that it starts with those other things. I'm going to live for God. I'm going to do all these things for God. Without ever actually fully, fully giving yourself to God. For people out of our life, that a lot of people see life as a little tie. Yeah, you're a tie to your little God stuff. But God says, put the tie in all sorts of little pies. I don't want a little piece of it here. I don't want a little slice of it there. I don't want, you know, your little Sunday morning here or your little act of service there. I want the pie. Offer your, your whole self. Offer your body. Start with that which, without which you could do nothing. Your body. Second Corinthians 5.15 says that he died for all. Indicative. And he did. Implication, application, flowing from the truth that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him. That's what this is getting at. Right? He died for all so that those who live, living sacrifices, no longer live for themselves, but for Him. Because you gave yourself fully over to Him. The call to offer our bodies is the grounds of Christian obedience. It's in the daily physical life, what we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we do with our bodies. Romans 6.13, if you remember, going back now, present yourselves to God, same language, same word, present, offer yourself as a sacrifice, it's sacrificial language, offer yourself to God as a sacrifice. If those who have been brought from death to life, indicative, that's who you are, that's what's going to happen. You've been brought from death to life. The grace in which you stand, the grace of life in Christ. As those people, present yourself to God as your members to God as instruments of righteousness. This body that has been an instrument of so many he says, now becomes an instrument in the hand of God for righteousness. The purpose for which Offer yourself your, your members, that is the parts of your body, your eyes and your ears, your hands and your feet. And he describes a sacrifice as living, which is really unusual. Anybody reading this would be like, well, you know, the whole point of a sacrifice is that it dies. Right? The whole point of a sacrifice is you put it on the altar and you kill it. And in a moment, it's dead. Right? So, you know, to offer a sacrifice. Usually is a one is usually a one and done, and that in some ways it would be easy if Jesus just said die for me. In some ways that's easy because it's one choice. I can make it right now in a moment of strength, in a moment of clarity, in a moment of spiritual you know you know clarity. I could make that choice to give myself to Him, and it's done. In a living sacrifice means I got to make that choice every day, again and again and again. I got to make it every moment. I got to make it with everything that's before me. Am I going to do this? For this, I've got to offer myself to Him and my members as instruments of His righteousness. And I've got to do it over and over again, all day, every day, to 
to live for Him and not for myself. Be a living sacrifice. You're continually surrendered. And keep offering and keep being His. to deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. So you have the language of sacrifice. If you want to come after me, if you want to belong to me, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to bear that name, well, here's what it's got to be. If you want to do that, then you're going to have to deny yourself every day and take up your cross. You're going to have to decide to take up the cross of the, the image of sacrifice. Jesus is sacrificed to God to offer something. Right? But then you deny yourself daily. Living sacrifice, that moment by moment, you're denying yourself daily. Over and over again, I don't live for me, I live for you. I live myself and my time and my resources, but not my life. I've been bought with the price. Paul's exhortation to a new life comes to us in the context of his mercy, his love, his acceptance, his adoption. After asking what he wants, so you and I may live that way, asking what he wants, but this should be our moment by moment prayer, not my will be done. Not my father, not my will be done for you. Not my will be done for you. Pray for this. So the sacrifice is to be holy and acceptable. We're to by his mercy, by the mercies of God, we're to offer our bodies, our physical, whole living self as a as a living sacrifice, not to die for him, but to live for him, and we should be holy and acceptable to God. The word holy here, too often we think of this word, what do, we, what do you think of when you think of holy? Too often we think if he's living a holy life, he's living a pure life. Right? So we think of purity or moral purity. That's correct. That's in there. It's not less than that. But the idea of holy here is so much bigger. Like in some ways, it, it makes it too easy. All I got to do is this, this, and this. <laughs> and I'm holy. Right? If I can just, you know, not do a few bad things, I can be holy. But holy, you, you and I both know, if you've been in church for any length of time, that the, the, the meaning of the word holy means basically to be set apart. Right? To set something apart. And what he is saying here is that you're to be a, sac- a living sacrifice that is set apart. 
set apart from the world in the service of God. Set apart from yourself. You're not accepted. Set apart from yourself and your own will to do the will of God. To say yes to Him and no to me. And so this whole idea to be set apart is so huge. Doesn't that involve everything? Right? So it is your moral purity. It is your moral right. Your that sense. But it's, it's not just that part of your life. It's your whole what this image gives us, taking your body and your soul and putting it on the altar. In Exodus chapter 40, verses 9 and 10, we read this. It says that we are to consecrate, they are to consecrate, as we can make holy, the temple and all of its furniture. Furniture for the Lord. Right? So that it may become holy. The furniture. Right? And the temple. And you also shall anoint the altar and all the burnt offering for the burnt offering and all of its utensils. So the altar and all of its utensils and the things used in there. So that the altar and those instruments may become most holy. So what does it mean in God? This is why I say this idea of being holy to God is bigger than moral purity because furniture and altars and utensils, you know, aren't morally pure. But what they are is set apart for one purpose. And that purpose is for the service and worship of God. And that's what it means for those things to be made holy. They're in the temple. They're not to be used to take home and, you know, clean houses. You know, the furniture, the table, the basin, the candelabra, all of the utensils that are in there are, are, are reserved for one thing and one thing only, and that is the service and the worship of God. And when he says that we need to be a sacrifice that is set on the altar, offered, it's to be holy, it is to be completely given to one purpose. This is what it means to live for the service and the worship of God. Christianity, we always talk about Christianity as an option for religion often religion is when when it's a slice of your pie, and I go to church and I do a few Christian things. Right? But the Christianity of the Bible is wholly relational. It is to be surrendered to God, the God who made you, and who knows you, and who loves you, and has saved you, who now has bought you with a price, and who owns you, right? who has redeemed you for himself and adopted you as his child. Right, who has brought you in and created you to be a new community and a new people on the, on the planet. And it means it's this whole huge thing of walking with Christ, knowing Him, loving Him, serving Him. And that being the, the essence of our lives, not a little slice of it, but it's how we get up and start every day in His Word with Him, knowing Him, loving Him, seeking Him, worshiping Him. And then as I live out my day, how I use my hands, what I look at with my eyes, what I listen to with my ears, what I do with my hands, all of those very practical, down and dirty things are living that out. By His mercy, moment by moment. A lot of us like to do religion. The world loves a little religion. Just a little. You want to be to be a Christian. If anyone would come after you, you must deny 
is our separate journey, but but our whole existence, right? Our bodies and everything we do with our bodies, right? It has it involves our whole lives. If we give our whole self over to Him, surrender ourselves to Him, then it's going to have to do with what do you do with your money? What do you do with your time? What do you do with your talents? Right? How are you at work? What do you like in parenting? What does it mean to be a husband or a wife? All of it is on the table or on the altar, so to speak. All of it has everything to do with being surrendered to God. And what does it look like to be God's person in in my life? What does it look like to be God's person as I raise children or I be an employer or an employee? God's man, God's woman in every one of those contexts, seeking His glory and not my own. for ourselves, but for Him and for His glory, which in some sense is what it means, this word acceptable, that we are to be holy and acceptable. The word acceptable, we see it again in verse 2, down at the end there, so we can discern what is good and acceptable and perfect and acceptable there, literally underneath that is a Greek word that means well-pleasing or very pleasing. Some translate this, you know, holy and Pleasing to God. And I think that gets at it. What does it mean to be pleasing to God? It means to do His will and not yours. To seek His glory and not yours. To live for Him and not for yourself. Some would argue that it's the essence of the fall and the essence of sin when we went from being God-centered and yielded to Him, serving and following Him, was to become self-centered. Or to begin to live for ourselves. Right? And this radical surrendering of ourselves back to who we're created to be well pleasing, to live a life that is pleasing and honorable to Him. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 31 says, Whether you eat or whether you drink, what you do with your body, right? You eat with your body, you drink with your body, whatever you're doing with your body, and even these most basic things, what you put in your body. What in terms of what you're eating and what you're drinking and your motives behind those things and how it affects other people when you do those things. He says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do, anything you do, everything you do, do all of it to the glory of God. Do all of it. Not for your own glory, but for your own indulgence, to please yourself, to fulfill your own will, to get what you want. Do it all. Some of your choices. We offer ourselves by the all sufficient mercies of God, standing in the place of grace, like the earth Standing in the place of grace. The Christian is the person who is set apart from the world, through which I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. And the sacrifice and the cross. The person who is set apart then from the world to belong exclusively to God. And His purposes and His glory. Colossians three seventeen. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, whatever you do, everything that you do, this is in your body, in your word. How you talk to your employee? How you talk to your employer? How you talk to your wife? How you talk to your husband? How you talk to your kids? How you talk to your classmates? How you talk to your friends? How you talk to strangers? How you treat waitresses? Whatever you do, in word, whoever you're speaking to. 
or in deed, whatever you do with your body, whatever acts that you're making, whatever you do in word or in deed, he says, do it all, do everything, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this, that verse is the same thing as verse 1 right here in Romans 12. To offer ourselves holy, everything that we do, word or in deed, on the altar, belonging to him, surrendered to Him, yielded to Him for His purposes, to please Him, set apart for His purposes entirely. Everything we do every day, living not for ourselves, but for God. Giving thanks to the Father who lives by Him and through Him. And in all of it that you're doing, you see there's a heart of gratitude. There's no drudgery here. This is a willing surrender, or it's not a surrender. It's what we want. Or you have it, we can't even do it. Right? It's what we want. To belong to God, there's nothing that a true Christian desires more in the bottom of their soul than to really and truly and wholly belong to their God. And to really and truly and wholly be an instrument for His life. If that's not your heart, I'm not sure your heart is right. And we may struggle with that, and that is hard, and we may feel guilty, and we have to live that whole life of Repentance and faith, and as we struggle down that road, but at the bottom, want to please Him. So whatever I do, whatever I say, word or deed, so we do it with thankfulness. Like the thanks because we're holy, righteous in Christ, and the grace in which we can stand. Thankful to the Father because we already belong to Him. Before we do one thing in word or deed. We already belong to Him. That's why we give thanks to the Father even as we do it. We're simply living out of that grace in which we stand. We're not trying to earn grace. We're not trying to earn, in a sense, His pleasure on us as His children. We just want to walk consistently with who we are and the grace in which we stand. This moral 
vision in some ways is not logical. Or its logic is based in something else. If Romans 1 to 11 is true, then your logical response in service is everything that he's going to start laying out. If these things are true, then this is the logical response. The problem is in our culture, they start saying these things are not true. And so there is no logical outcome. There's only moral confusion because we have untethered ourselves from anything. And so we see in our culture they're drifting in this way and that. And they look inside instead of looking outside, surrendering ourselves to the God who made us and the fabric of the moral universe that he has created. We actually look inside to see what we think and what we feel. We create our own morality and your own thing. There's no wonder there's confusion. Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. What they feel. The logic is emphatically self-centered. Or the logic here in the scripture is so radically self-centered. And when you are tethered to Romans 1 to 11, then the logical outflow in worship and service is everything that he's about to say. Unless a person has given themselves to God, surrendered themselves to God, then morality and reality can be just radically different if there are people in the world. The logical, reasonable response to God's mercy is to stop and let yourself all day, all of your daily life, every day. Who you are to your spouse in the morning and in the evening, who you are to your children, who you are at work, the kind of an ethic you have when you work, and what kind of an employee you are, and how honest you are with the things of your employer, and how you are with our government and with the laws of our nation, who we are in relation to each other. All of it, all of it gets brought in. Tozer said, No one can long worship God in spirit and in truth. For the obligation to holy service becomes too strong. The only logical reasonable spiritual response to a true worship of God and a true worship of God in spirit and in truth, I would suggest, according to Jesus, is to daily deny ourselves, take up our cross, and offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God who not only made us but redeems us. Saves us, cleanses our souls, makes us his own. So this life, as we're going to see as we move into the rest of the chapter, first going to read the first two, then dive into specific kinds of commands. I believe it is first a life that is centered in corporate worship, right where we are right now. I would suggest that this letter was being read in worship services all over the ancient world. That's what they did there. Passed it from church to church, and they gathered it, and they read it, and they sang it. And then, as you look at the commands that follow, this letter itself, which is being read by churches, was written to a church. It was written to the Roman church, and all of these things are being said to the church and the church in Rome, and how they are to be. And as you go through some of these things, he says, "I say to everyone among you that is among the church, all you church people, that you gather together, not to think more highly of yourself than you should, but." 
And then he goes into all these things that God has gifted each one of us. What is the body of Christ and what we're to do with those gifts? And he's talking about our corporate existence. Right? And so this life, you know, begins, I think, at the center of a wheel with spokes. begins with our corporate life and then spokes out into our work, our marriage, our parenting, our community service, our wherever we exist out here. goes home, who we are at home, with our chapel. And Claren says it this way, and I like it, he really says, the best worship is the manifold activities of daily life laid upon God's altar. Many, everything we do, our daily life, laid on the altar. The heart, this is the heart of all genuine Christianity. Morning. I don't know where you are, and I want to say, have you ever, in a sense, offered yourself, presented yourself, surrendered yourself, yielded yourself to God, to live for Him, to be Him? Right? We do that by putting our faith and our trust in Christ, who died to enable us to stand in His place of grace and acceptance, and to, to put our faith and trust in Christ. And then Jesus says in return, and if you want to follow me, if you want to follow that life, then you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Have you ever done that? Are you? And I, I know when I'm you know, writing these kind of things, if I were to speak on it, I'm on a, on a pedestal and look down, and I have no accomplished all these things. I am, as I write these things, I am so convicted in so many places. Where am I not surrendering? Where am I living for myself? What do I not even trust in what he's doing for me? Where do I not even care what he's doing? What am I doing with my time and my money and myself and in, in my sense of service and the needs in the body and the needs in the community? Do I, have I truly given myself and yielded and surrendered myself? And where do I need to begin to make changes, radical changes? Shepherd's point in verse 2 is going to get into this transformation of that. For many of us, there's a radical change that needs to take place in our lives and being self-centered. Trying to make God a little slice of your life and make sure it makes you feel good. Where it's all about you. Your marriage. Your work. Your money. Your time. Right? A command is made. A call is made on your time and your money. Is it yours? Or is it God's? Have you, have you evaluated that way? Christian, I have so many, but just try hard to be a good person. Or have you abandoned yourself first? If you try to be a good Christian and a good person, but have not surrendered to God, you will, you will not have the strength and the power and the grace. And our attempts to be a good person will be destroyed. Where are you living to please yourself? Are you living to please God? Where are you living? Because this fully surrendered life to God to please Him is the normal something that's there for you. Biblical. This is the normal Christian life. It's a life of joyfully surrendering to a holy God and obedient and spiritually responsive and merciful God who offers love, salvation, and sacrifice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Lord Jesus and your giving and sacrifice.
how reasonable it is for us to give ourselves back in gratitude and in worship to the one who has purchased our souls, cleansed us, owned us, graced us. Father, I pray that this morning you would touch our imagination and give us a full picture of the sacrifice and giving ourselves on an altar that you would day by day continuously yield, continuously surrender, keep on offering whatever we do in word or in deed, in all these things, we would do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving you thanks and praise. We will belong fully to you.